Book Two, Chapter Four of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Two, The Art Critic, eighteen forty-two to eighteen sixty. Chapter Four: Stones of Venice, eighteen forty-nine to eighteen fifty-one. Recording by Shyan Arrowsmith. A book about Venice had been planned in eighteen forty-five, during Ruskin's first long working visit. He had made so many notes and sketches, both of architecture and painting, that the material seemed ready to hand. Another visit would fill up the gaps in his information, and two or three months' hard writing would work the subject off and set him free to continue modern painters. So, before leaving home in eighteen forty-nine, he had made up his mind that the next work would be the Stones of Venice, which, on the appearance of the Seven Lamps, was announced by the publishers as in preparation. He left home again early in October. By the end of November, he was settled with his wife at Hotel Daniele, Venice, for the winter. He expected to find without much trouble all the information he wanted as to the dates, styles, and history of Venetian buildings. But after consulting and comparing all the native writers, it appeared that the questions he asked of them. Were just the questions they were unprepared to answer, and that he must go into the whole matter fresh. So he laid himself out that winter for a thorough examination of St. Mark's and the Ducal Palace and the other remains, drawing, and measuring, and comparing their details. His father had gone back to England in September out of health. And the letters from home did not report improvement. His mother too was beginning to fear the loss of her sight, and he could not stay away from them any longer. In February eighteen fifty, he broke off his work in the middle of it and returned to London. The rest of the year he spent in writing the first volume of Stones of Venice, and in preparing the illustrations, together with. Examples of the architecture of Venice, a portfolio of large lithographs and engravings in mezzotint and lime to accompany the work. It was most fortunate for Ruskin that his drawings could be interpreted by such men as Armitage and Cousin, Cuff and Lucou, Boyce and Lupton. And not without advantage to them that their masterpieces should be preserved in his works, and praised as they deserved in his prefaces. But these plates for stones of Venice were in advance of the times. The publisher thought them caviar to the general, so Mister J. J. Ruskin told his son, but gave it as his own belief that some dealers in Ruskins and Turners in eighteen ninety will get. Great prices for what at present will not sell. Early in eighteen fifty, his father, 
at his mother's desire and with the help of w h harrison collected and printed his poems with a number of pieces that still remained in m s the author taking no part in this revival of bygones which for the sake of their associations he was not anxious to recall though his father still believed that he might have been a poet and ought to have been one this is the volume of poems john ruskin eighteen fifty so highly valued by collectors under the resurrection was the king of the golden river which had lain hidden for the nine years of the ars poetica he allowed it to be published with woodcuts by the famous dicky doye the little book ran through three editions that year the first issue must have been torn to rags in the nurseries of the last generation since copies are so rare as to have brought ten guineas apiece instead of the six shillings at which they were advertised in eighteen fifty a couple of extracts from letters of eighteen fifty will give some ideas of ruskin's impressions of london society and the drawing-room my dearest mother horrible party last night stiff large dull fidgety strange run against everybody no nobody sort of party naval people young lady claims acquaintance with me i know as much of her as of queen pomer talk get away as soon as i can ask who she is lady m -m -m. as wise as i was before introduced to a black man with chain in collar black man condescending i abuse different things to black man chiefly the house of lords black man says he lives in it asks where i live don't want to tell him obliged go away and ask who he is hmm. as wise as i was before introduced to a young lady young lady asks if i like drawing so away and ask who she is lady mm -mm. keep away with back to war and look at watch get away at last very sulky this morning hope my father better dearest of love to you both park street four o'clock may eighteen fifty my dearest of father we got through gloriously though at one place there was the most awkward crush i ever saw in my life the pit at the surrey which i never saw may perhaps show the like nothing else the floor was covered with the ruins of ladies dresses torn lace and fallen flowers but effie was luckily out of it and got through unscathed and heard people saying what a beautiful dress just as she got up to the queen it was fatiguing enough but not so awkward as i expected the queen looked much younger and prettier than i expected very like her pictures even like those which are thought to flatter most but i only saw the profile i could not see the front face as i kneeled to her 
at least without an upturning of the eyes which I thought would be unseemly, and there were but some two or three seconds allowed for the whole affair. The queen gave her hand very graciously, but looked bored, poor thing. Well, she might be, with about a quarter of a mile square of people to bow to. I met two people whom I have not seen for many a day, Kildare and Scott Moray. Had a chat with the former and a word with Moray, but nothing of interest. As one of the chief literary figures of the day, Ruskin could not avoid society, and as he tells in Preterita, he was rewarded for the reluctant performance of his duties by meeting with several who became his lifelong friends. Chief among these, he mentions Mr. and Mrs. Cowper Temple, afterwards Lord and Lady Mont Temple. The acquaintance with Samuel Rogers, inauspiciously begun many years before, now ripened into something like friendship. Moncton Milnes, Lord Horton, and other men of letters were met at Rogers' breakfasts. A little later, a visit to the Master of Trinity, Hugh at Cambridge brought him into contact with Professor Willis, the authority on Gothic architecture, and other notabilities of the sister university. There also he met Mr. and Mrs. Marshall of Leeds and Coniston, and he pursued his journey to Lincoln with Mr. Simpson, whom he had met at Lady Davies, and to Farnley, for a visit to Mr. F. H. Fox, the owner of the celebrated collection of Turners, April 1851. In London, he was acquainted with many of the leading artists and persons interested in art. Of the teachers of the day, he was known to men so diverse as Carlyle and Morris, with whom he corresponded in 1815 about his notes on sheepfolds, and C. H. Spurgeon, to whom his mother was devoted. He was as yet neither a hermit nor a heretic, but mixed freely with all sorts and conditions, with one exception. For Puseyites and the Romanists were yet as heathen men and the publicans to him, and he noted with interest while writing his review of Venetian history, that the strength of Venice was distinctly anti-papal, and her virtues Christian but not Roman. Reflections on this subject were to have formed part of his great work, but the first volume was taken up with the a priori development of architectural forms, and the treatment in especial of Venetian matters had to be indefinitely postponed until another visit had given him the opportunity of gathering his material. Meanwhile, his wide sympathy had turned his mind toward a subject which then had received little attention, though since then loudly discussed the reunion of Protestant Christians. He put together his thoughts in a pamphlet on the text There shall be one fold and one shepherd, calling it, in allusion to his architectural studies, notes on the construction of sheepfolds. He proposed a compromise, trying to prove that the pretensions to priesthood on the high Anglican side 
and the objections to episcopacy on the presbyterian were alike untenable and hoped that when once these differences such little things he thought them were arranged a united church of england might become the nucleus of a world-wide federation of protestants a civitas day a new jerusalem there were many who agreed with his aspirations he received shows of letters from sympathizing readers most of them praising his aims and criticizing his means others objected rather to his manner than to his matter the title savoured of levity and an art critic writing on theology was supposed to be wandering out of his province tradition says that the notes were freely bought by border farmers under a rather laughable mistake but surely it was no new thing for a scotch reader to find a religious tract under a catching title there were a few replies one by mr dice who defended the anglican view with mild persiflage and the usual commonplaces and there the matter ended for the public for ruskin it was the beginning of a train of thought which led him far he gradually learned that his error was not in asking too much but in asking too little he wished for the union of protestants forgetting the sheep that are not of that fold and little dreaming of the answer he got after many days in christ's folk in the apennine meanwhile the first volume of stones of venice had appeared march eighteen fifty one its reception was indirectly described in a pamphlet entitled something on ruskinism with a vestibule in rhyme by an architect complaining bitterly of the ecstasies of rapture into which the newspapers had been thrown by the new work your book since reviewers so swear may be rational still tis certainly not either royal or national for it did not join in the chorus of congratulation to prince albert and the british public on the great exhibition of eighteen fifty one the apotheosis of trade and machinery the architect finds also what may surprise the modern reader who has not noticed that many an able work has been thought unreadable on its first appearance that he cannot understand the language and ideas your style is so soaring and some it makes sore that plain folks can't make out your strange mystique lure he will allow the author to be quite right when he finds something to agree upon but the moment a sore point is touched then ruskin is insane in one respect the architect hit the nail on the head readers who are not reviewers by profession can hardly fail to perceive that ruskinism is violently inimical to sundry existing interests the best men we said were the first to recognize ruskin's genius let us throw into the opposite scale an opinion of more weight than the architect in a transcript of the original letter from carlyle chelsea march the ninth 
1851. Dear Ruskin, I did not know yesterday, till your servant was gone, that there was any note in the parcel, nor at all what a feat you had done. Along of the gallant young man's memoirs was what I expected, and here, in a most chivalrous style, comes a gift of them. This, I think, must be in the style prior to the Renaissance. What can I do but accept your kindness with pleasure and gratitude, though it is far beyond my deserts? Perhaps the next man I meet will use me as much below them, and so bring matters straight again. Truly, I am much obliged, and return you many hearty thanks. I was already deep in the stones, and clearly purposed to hold on there. A strange, unexpected, and I believe most true and excellent sermon in stones, as well as the best piece of schoolmastering in architectonics, from which I hope to learn much in a great many ways. The spirit and purport of these critical studies of yours are a singular sign of the times to me, and a very gratifying one. Right good speed to you, and Victoria's arrival on the farther shore. It is a quite new renaissance, I believe, we are getting into just now, either towards new, wider manhood, high again as the eternal stars, or else into final death, and the marsh of Gehenna for evermore. A dreadful process, but a needful and inevitable one. Nor do I doubt at all which way the issue will be, though which of the extant nations are to get intruded in it, and which is to be trampled out and abolished in the process, may be very doubtful. God is great, and sure enough, the changes in the construction of sheepfolds, as well as in other things, will require to be very considerable. We are still laboring under the foul kind of influenza here. I, not far from emancipated, my poor wife still deep in the business, though I hope past the deepest. Am I to understand that you too are seized? In a day or two I hope to ascertain that you are well again. Adieu. Here is an interruption. Here also is the end of the paper. With many thanks and regards. As soon as the first volume of Stones of Venice and the Notes on the Construction of Sheepfolds were published, Ruskin took a short eastern holiday at Matlock and set to work at a new edition of Modern Painters. This was the fifth reprint of the first volume and a third of volume two. They were carefully and conscientiously revised and the postscript indulged in a little triumph at the changed tongue of public criticism upon Turner. But it was too late to have been much service to the great artist himself. In 1845, after saying goodbye and why would you go to Switzerland, there will be such a fitch about you when you are gone, Turner lost his health and was never himself again. The last drawings he did for Ruskin, January 1848, the Brunic and descent from the St. Gotthard to Airolo, showed his condition unmistakably. 
and the lonely restlessness of the last disappointing years were for all his friends a melancholy ending to a brilliant career ruskin wrote this year eighteen fifty one he has no picture on the walls of the academy and the times of may third says we miss those works of inspiration we miss who misses the populace of england rose by to weary itself in the great bazaar of kensington little thinking that a day will come when those veiled vestals and prancing amazons and goodly merchandise of precious stones and gold will all be forgotten as though they had not been but that the light which has faded from the walls of the academy is one which a million coinors could not rekindle and that the year eighteen fifty one will in the far future be remembered less for what it has displayed than for what it has withdrawn end of book two chapter four recording by cheyenne arrowsmith